You are now tuned in to the AddictedToSuccess.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next-level game-changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on AddictedToSuccess.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. Today, I have a great friend of mine by the name of David T.S. Wood, who is a business leader, trainer, leadership coach, humanitarian, and founder of AmplifiedLiving.com, which is a website that helps you unlock your full potential and ultimate life dreams. Now, Dave also has received millions of downloads and plays on his podcast from all around the world. Uh, from his two successful podcasts, the Kick-Ass Life podcast and Amplified Network Marketing. And he's just launched the Crank It Up show this year. So Dave, it's a pleasure and it's also an honor to have you on this line with us today. Thank you for joining us. Joe, you know what? I want to make sure everyone, and people know this, I, I and you and I, I tell you this all the time, you know, you have such a gift. And I think what you do in the world is such a, a significant thing because, you know, and I love your story. I love the parts of your story. Have you how you've navigated yourself to really not not only uh, align with people of influence, but to truly become a person of influence. And I really uh, I really honor you for that. So it's great to be on here, and I can't wait to hang out and have a beer with you. So <laughs> <laughs> it's such an Aussie thing to do. Have a beer, right? <laughs> have a beer, mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Now, Dave, I want the, uh, like, I know you personally, but I want the listeners to get an idea of really who you are. And, you know, I remember sitting in one of your events uh, as a Train the Trainer event. It would have been maybe two years back. I remember you sharing the story of uh, your life, I guess, uh, when you dropped out of school, you know, as a teen and how you were a little lost in life. Now, what was your attitude towards life like growing up in such a rough time? And when did this all change for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't normally get asked that question. And I, I, I really, my attitude was one, I think I was angry. Um, so, but I also had, I was resilient. You know, my, I, my parents had separated when I was seven and we were left in a foreign country. And we found our way back into England with my mom and there was, you know, four kids and we lived in a, in a condemned building. So I always say Western poverty is an interesting thing because, you know, I travel all over the world. And if you go to Egypt, the largest garbage dump in the world, you know, kids live in it. So that's real poverty. So by Western standards, though, you know, our poverty living in a condemned building was, was pretty horrendous. You know, we didn't have a fridge. <laughs> you know, we didn't, one room was completely condemned. You know, there were three beds and four of us. So we were actually rotating, you know, we had to sleep, you know, every third night we had to sleep with someone, you know, it was just, it was just that, that kind of world. Right. But I mean, I don't think you kind of, I didn't know, I didn't know I was poor, and that we lived in poverty until one day at school, I pointed out where I lived. My my house overlooked the school, and I got a label, a slum kid, you know, and then, you know, in England at that time, uh, it was, you know, gangs, you know, and fighting and breaks was very, very common, lots and lots of bullying, you know, and so, you know, you get like nine kids and you're putting the boots in because you were a slum kid. I mean, it was very, very, so I think I, I sort of was resilient. I was tough, and I wasn't a tough fighting guy. I was tough inside. Um, and so, you know, but I, I didn't do well, you know, I didn't do very well at school at all. And I actually ended up leaving school, uh, when I was 15, left home when I was 15. And I started sort of dabbling, uh, in business. I was a window cleaner, I was a chimney sweep, 
Um, and you know, I, I, I started a painting company, painting and decorating company. I just worked with my hands. I, everywhere I went at my ladders on my roof. Um, but I, I, you know, again, I think I was resilient. Um, but I, there was this anger inside of me. I hated my mom at the time and my mom and I have a great relationship now. I didn't know my dad. I didn't see my dad from seven to 15 at all. I didn't see him at all. And so, you know, I, I think I had a chip on my shoulder. And I was very, very, very much influenced by the environment that I was in. All my friends were getting high. They were getting drunk. Uh, everyone carried around, you know, um, it was Moroccan black, you know, uh, hash. And so, you know, you see friends, all you do is roll up a joint, you know, or, or you go to the pub and we stay in the pub. And, you know, the British are notorious drinkers. So I was a heavy drinker. I smoked cigarettes. So I was just in this world that was completely foreign to the one I'm sitting in right now. So. <laughs> It sounded like at that point, the world was against you. You had so many things coming at you. Where was that change? Where was that shift for you, that like aha moment? It was an accident. It accidentally happened. You know, at, at 20, um, I was I was part of a darts team. And so, you know, we played really uh, highly competitive darts. There were 12 of us. And they said they were going on an all-inclusive six-day trip to Tunisia. I had no idea what Tunisia was. And some of you on the call probably don't know, but it's North Africa. It's a Muslim country. Uh, and uh, and we went there for six days, all inclusive. We just got drunk every single day. And at the end of it, I decided to stay. I had about two thousand dollars left. I thought I was going to stay until my money ran out. I had all the wrong equipment. I had this backpack that was uncomfortable and it was impractical. I had no clothes for real backpacking. And when they flew, when they when they took off, I turned around and saw the country for the first time. I'm wearing little short shorts because I'm 54. <laughs> so this was. 34 years ago, like those little sh short shorts with a frayed edges, and I had a white beater on, I a muscle shirt on, walking through an Arab country where showing your shoulders and showing skin is really a sign, it's really an insult to, to, to their culture and, and, and their religion. And so I was getting a lot of hostility, so I just locked myself in a hotel room for a week, and I was terrified. I didn't know how to cope. I mean, it's the first time in my life I've been completely alone in a foreign land where no one spoke my language. You know, and I kept looking at my passport thinking, when I get back, I'm going to show everyone where I've been. And, of course, I didn't leave the room. And I, I used up half my money in that first seven days. <laughs> and here's how ignorant I was, Joe. It's so funny. I, I actually phoned a travel agent, and they spoke English. And I said to them, I need to buy a ticket to Israel. And they said, there's no such country. And I'm saying, what do you mean there's no such country? They say, and so here I am. It's a Muslim country. Of course, I don't recognize the state of Israel. It's called Palestine. That's how ignorant I was. I mean, <laughs> I'm in their region that are knocking someone on the head saying, of course Israel exists. What are you stupid? Right? I mean, I was just an idiot. And so accidentally, I left the country. And that, that journey lasted 10 and a half years, 42 countries. And it took about a year and a half for the knot in my stomach to leave, the fear. And I remember when I, I ended up in Israel, I actually flew to Egypt, and I went to Egypt in the Sinai Desert, and I spent three months traveling through uh, Egypt. And it was in Egypt that I started to get a sense that I didn't need to be afraid, but it was in Israel, I lived there for a year, where I started to, I just sort of suddenly disappeared. I started to see people differently. I, instead of being fearful of people, I became fascinated, and I became interested, and I found that the more interested I became in people, the more interesting they were, and the more open they were. So I, I and I, again, a ten and a half years of backpacking, you know, I became very, very good at connecting, and and not only connecting but building high trust, because quite often I meet strangers, and that night, and I'd end up in their house sleeping on their couch or in their spare room, and quite often I, you know, I go for the night and spend a month, you know, and that happened over ten and a half years. So it was a real accidental. Uh, thing. I got out of my environment. I got away from the drugs. I got away from the drinking. 
And, you know, I started hanging around different types of people. And, and had I not, because I didn't know what world existed. I don't think anyone does. You know, wherever you're at right now, I mean, you know, you don't know what's happening in China right now if you're living in L.A. You know, you, you kind of know what's going on in your home and your street and where you work. But, I mean, there's really no concept about what's happening in other parts of the world. And so my world was the one I knew, and that was it. And the people I knew were in my world, and what they did, I did. I didn't know there was options. I thought everyone smoked dope. I thought everyone got drunk. I didn't know that people didn't, right, because that's all I knew. Yeah, wow. And you know, I want to pinpoint it back to that moment when you said that you started to put trust in people or you started to become more fascinated. Do you think this is because you were more experienced? Uh, you had more reference points in your mind at that time where you were like, you can start relating to your experiences going, well, you know, these people seem okay. Maybe, you know, th this next lot of people I come across are, are going to be fine too. Is that how it all worked for you at that point in time? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I was that conscious. I, I don't think I was. I think what I was, I mean, part of it was survival and part of it was just, you know, when you start backpacking like that, you know, and, and sometimes people who think backpacking, here I am, you know, living out of a tent. I mean, sometimes I lived in a tent, but, you know, sometimes I lived in mansions. You know, in Spain, I, I looked after a valley for a billionaire. So I was the sort of curator of this whole valley, and I lived in his house while he was traveling for four months. You know, and sometimes I, you know, I sailed across the Atlantic. So sometimes in my life, I was living in complete opulence, and other times I was you know, living in a, in a tent, you know, in a, in a sleeping bag, trying to swat a fly that was flying around inside, right? Um, but I, I don't know if I was conscious enough to know that. I think what it does, sometimes you don't know what you know, and what happened was I started to realize when I, when I behaved certain ways, the world treated me a certain way. And when I behaved other ways, the results were different. And I don't think I consciously ever sat down and said, oh, I'm going to start doing this. I just unconsciously knew, started to know what worked. I knew, I know that if I, if I led with a smile, if I went first, if I, if I said hi, if I started treating strangers like friends, and this is a big thing. I teach you today, but I don't think I've ever told this story before in this way. But, you know, I, I actually tell my students, I'll say, listen, you know, what? when you treat a stranger as if they're already your best friend, something happens. And if you can find common ground with a stranger and treat them like your best friend in a few minutes, they're going to say something like this. But you, you talk for 10, 15 minutes. They're going to say something like, God, I feel like I've known you my whole life. And it's this really bizarre thing, you know, and that I, I live on a hundred percent trust world. I think 45 people have the code to my front door. I, I just don't worry about things. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have fear. So I give people absolute trust when I need them, a hundred percent trust. And, you know, uh, I had, you know, you know, Nat Cook, Nat Cook's a five-time Olympian, Olympic gold medalist. Yeah. Her and her, her wife were here uh, at the house. I've been here a couple of times and we were hanging out and, um, I, I got out to, to a pub with some friends, and when we were leaving the pub, I met a couple of people on the street, and I actually smelled them before I saw them. They, they'd been on the street for a while, and I said to my, and we were chatting to them, and they were like from a different part of the country, and they were just so, you know, they weren't street people, but they were kind of trying to travel, and they'd sort of run out of money, and they were living in a car, and you know, and I just said, listen, guys, when was the last time you showered? I said, because you smell bad. I said, why don't you come up to the house tomorrow and come for dinner, and you can use my shower. And, you know, Nat and Sarah are here, and when these people show up, you know, they've got dreadlocks and they stink, you know, and I, and I didn't, I let them use my master shower, not, I didn't put them in the guest room. And, you know, we had dinner, and we had a great night with them, and, and Sarah, uh, Nat's wife, is from Quebec, and so this girl was from Quebec, their conversation was phenomenal, they laughed, you know, but afterwards, they said to me, it's really hard to believe that someone, um, you know, meets a stranger and allows them not only into their home, but into their 
private bedroom and gives them so much trust. And but that's the way the world the, the world I choose to live in, and I, and I, and I find that when even when people excuse my language here, but shitty people who, who would steal from me when I treat them that way, they wouldn't steal from me. They'd probably go next door because, and that's what I started to find. I started to find when I was traveling that I never got hurt, I never got attacked. When I saw people that most people were scared of, I connected with them, I I, I laughed with them, I acted more like them though. I, I did notice if I was around some gorillas. I acted a little bit more like a gorilla so that I didn't look like I was some weirdo. If they were, you know, <laughs> if they used profanity, I used a little bit more profanity so that I sounded like them. And I found that it was very, very easy to step into people's world. And if I met someone who was very zen and very peaceful, I just slowed down a little bit. And I sort of, I found myself kind of being able to enter people's world with absolute trust, a deep connection, and treating them like I really already liked them. And it just opened doors so fast, Joe. Yeah, that's amazing. It's almost like you're like mirroring them, right? And I think the number yeah. one thing is showing that you actually care. And people know when you say the word care, it's like there's like this uh, genuine feeling behind it, right? You know, quite a few times we've, we've hung out, and I can tell you've got a huge heart. And I think that you can only really get that based through experiences of opening your heart to let people in. You can't just develop it out of nowhere. Like you need to start practicing caring more and you'll see that it actually works, right? Well, the challenge that most people have, right, is because they've been hurt. And mm. because they've been hurt or someone robbed them, then they start distrusting the world, right? I mean, it's not like I've never had anything stolen, but I choose not to worry about having more things stolen, right? It's not like I'm going to say, because someone broke into a house I had, you know, five years ago, that I have nine locks on my door now, right? And that's what people do with love as well. You know, they, they, they get their heart broken and they go into their next relationship with less. So they because they, they've been hurt, they, they'll take less of the next relationship. And of course, because they take less, it's less than it was. And then they end up attracting people who want to give less. And so instead of sort of, you know, having an experience and just saying, well, that was what it was, and then diving both feet in, like with love, if we use that as an example, go into your next relationship, not only to get heartbroken, but to get devastated. And I find that with, with, with things that happen, most people, they get hurt or something happens to them, and that becomes the way they see the world. They put on these, this, this lens. And they start seeing the world as just untrustworthy, as opposed to just keeping it in context. So, yeah, so my house is broken, so what, right? And I teach a whole thing on, you know, we don't have to do it here unless you want me to, but I do this whole thing on, you know, um, uh, how, how when events happen in our life, we create stories about them, and that's what creates the problem. And really what we have most power over is the story itself. And I use real life examples uh, where, you know, I, I'll, I'll share an example that happened to me and the, the story I made up about it. And then that led to no problem. So event, no story, no problem, uh, event, story, problem. And I think a lot of people, when the events happen, they make up a story and they end up with a problem, but they carry the problems around forever. That's right. Yeah. And we're really great at fabricating stories too, or spicing them up and making them sound way more dramatic than they really are. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. People say like, Oh my God, I almost died. (laughs) What happened? Well, this idiot swerved in front of me. They didn't even hit their car. They go to work and they need a coffee and they're shaking because they almost died. And they didn't even have a scratch on them. And I always laugh at that because that's the world a lot of people live in. And, 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 you know, I taught this piece uh, last week when I was in, on the Gold Coast, the week before when I was on the Gold Coast, I, I did this big piece on conflict resolution. And, and I've really been doing, sort of doing some work in this area. 
And I want you to think about, let's say, extreme Hitler. Let's say Hitler or the ISIS, for example. Mm. What do they have to do in order to persecute or hurt or destroy people because of ethnicity? They have to dehumanize them. And so the whole premise is that, you know, in order to dehumanize people, we have to get into a box. So imagine there's this imaginary box that we carry around our whole life. And when we're in the box, right, we judge people, we dehumanize people, we treat people as objects when we're in the box. And we all do it. So I'll give you an example that people can relate to. So if I use Hitler as an example against the Jewish people, right, um, then you'd say he had to dehumanize the whole race and he wanted to exterminate them. Well, imagine you're driving along in a car and someone swerves in front of you and you start giving them the burden, laying on the horn and swearing at them, right? What have you just done? It's exactly the same energy. You've gone straight in the box. You had to dehumanize them because imagine in the car is a little old couple and they're driving to Florida on a holiday. They haven't had a holiday in 20 years. It's, you know, Molly and Jim. And they're the sweetest old farming couple you've ever met. And they were just having a little chat, you know, and he turned in front of him. He's 68 or 80. Let's say he's 80. And, you know, he's a little shaky. And he just, you know, but if we think of him like that, it's really hard to lay on the horn and give him the bird and start swearing. We suddenly see a person. But what happens is, you know, when we start getting into conflict with people, we have to unconsciously dehumanize them. And we see it on the largest scales when we see, you know, um, you know, genocide. But we see it every single day in the streets when people start treating each other like, you know, like they're not human, as if, you know, we've never made a mistake when someone does something on the road or, you know, you know, you see people being venomous to each other. We, we actually take away their humanity and we don't, we forget that we've made every mistake they just made. It's not like we've never swerved in front of someone. We don't ever, but as soon as we come out of our box, and we start to focus on the other people, and that's the only way out, is to focus on other people, right, and see them in their splendor or their, you know, their humanity with all their imperfections. That's how we stay out of the box, and we, we can love more unconditionally, and that's what you're saying about having a big heart. People who have great hearts, you can let a lot of people in. You just said that about Jack Campbell, a friend of mine of yours, right? Is like, you know, people with big hearts like that, we, 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 we see past, how people are acting. So if someone's acting like a jerk and they're angry, well, a lot of people do, they respond or react to the anger. And then they start becoming angry and defensive and suddenly there's this big void. But what happens when someone's angry, if we can see beyond that and say, oh shit, yeah, I've been angry too. And I can kind of understand what's going on. I see it's just a guy who's angry in this moment. What can happen is right away, we can get get to a different level of relationship and you'll actually see the stress leaving the person, right? I I know it's, I haven't got long enough to go into the whole training, take about an hour and a half, but the concept is there, right? Yeah, I love it, Dave. And also the uh, the whole story, no problem, no story, no problem uh, line. My fiance and I have been practicing that for the last two years now since we were at, at one of your events, one of your courses. And I've got to say, like, sometimes you are in that moment where you you do start, you know, going, oh, what is it, you know, going off. And then, and then it does come in. It comes at some point when you start realizing how ridiculous you sound. And then you tell yourself, oh, wait a minute, no story, no problem. I think it's like a natural... <laughs> Instinct well, do you want me to? Because do you want me to give one example for your uh, for your listeners so that they can put it in context? Yes, go ahead. The sure. one I gave on stage when when you were when you were at my event, I'll, I'll use one of the examples there. So I'm driving along in a car, and my son Calvin 
is, and my son Ben are in the back, and Calvin at the time is only about sort of six or seven, and he's taking his bike helmet and he's taking it off his head and on his head, off his head, on his head, and his bike is actually the handlebars are hanging over the seat, um, the back seat, um, and and I, I and I stop at this stop sign and I turn around to Cal, I say, Cal, what are you doing? He said, I'm just playing, and as I do that, this cement truck hits the back of our car, completely writes it off sends the bike careening into the back of Calvin's head just as he put the helmet on, right? He's screaming, Ben's screaming. I'm turning around, so I get really hurt. My girlfriend's in the car. I sort of fall out of the car, and this guy is in a cement truck. He's got a cigarette in his hand, and he's, start, he's shaking. He's looking completely, you know, white. And he's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He says, I'm just lighting a cigarette, right? And in that moment, I mean, I'm not kind of an anti-smoker, right? I'm not, because I used to smoke. I'm the anti-smoker now, right? Um, you know, I, I said, don't worry about it, mate. I said, don't worry. And I went over, I gave him a hug. And the guy was like, just couldn't believe what was going on. Here I am. And all I did in that moment is I started to think about all the times that I'd driven texting or driven with one knee as I'm kind of like, you know, cooking eggs on the side seat and writing a book with my life. I mean, I, I do like a million things in the car sometimes. I mean, we all do, right? And I just, when, when a situation like that happens, here he is, he's writing a cigarette, he didn't see me, he hit me. So he made a mistake, right? I have insurance. Yes, I'm hurt. But if I can put myself in a world where I don't make up a big story about that, and I can say the event is I was hit by a guy in a cement truck lighting a cigarette. No story. I don't make up a story about it. I have no problem. I don't walk away angry and venomous and that asshole. I can't believe he was lighting a cigarette. And then what do we do? We want to tell everyone about it. We want to tell the whole world what a jerk he was and how hurt we are. Right? And suddenly we perpetuate this whole thing, right? So I just get my heart and I said, no worries. Don't worry about it. I mean, the car was written off, so the insurance repaid it. Did I lose a little money on it? Yeah. Over the big scheme of things, the kids are alive. I'm alive. Je- uh, Michelle's alive. We're all okay, right? Yeah, and you could have reacted in a way that made it even worse. So that's well, yeah, and well, I mean, I watch people get out of cars and scream at each other. I used another example of the the elevator story, where you know I was trapped in an elevator for four hours, you know, and I'm I'm doing an event the next morning, and you know, and I I offer to help, I offer to open up, they say no, you can't, just wait there, wait there. Four hours later. I get out of the elevator, and there's the fire brigade, there's the, the lift people, there's the manager, there's the staff, oh, wow. they're all lined up looking like I'm going to rip them a new one. But fortunately, a year before, I'd watched the guy come out of an elevator. He was trapped for 25 minutes, and I watched him scream. at the, He was a huge, huge, huge muscular guy screaming at the manager of the hotel. It was so embarrassing, this spit coming out of his mouth, and he's just screaming as if the manager deliberately locked him in there. So I already have decided how I want to respond to anything that happens in my life, whether I lose my legs, whether I'm trapped in the elevator. So what I do is I jump out the elevator, and in the end, I had to open the doors. I had to climb up and pull this handle. It released me. I climbed out. I hugged everyone. I didn't say a word. I went to bed. You could see the shock on their faces. I didn't ask for a discount. I didn't ask for free wine. I just didn't mention it. And that's what I mean. No story, no problem. So I was trapped in the elevator for four hours, right? And it was freaking hot in there. And so what? But in the end, I'm in control of the story. And it really is a powerful concept when we get it. Now, I'm going to just give everyone, I'm not like a saint. Like with my kids and my, my, and my fiance, sometimes I'm a, I'm a real doorknob, right? And I can lose my temper and I make up a big freaking story and I beat my chest. But everything else outside of the things closest to my heart, I find that I can happen to me and I just don't worry about it. Yeah. For the listeners that are listening right now, I mean, this is only this is just one of the many, many lessons that uh, Dave shares. You have so many stories, like great examples and stories that you've shared, especially at your events. 
uh, that I've gone to. And I'm really excited because I know that you're holding an event in Vegas this week with Robin Sharma, uh, Jack Canfield, Lisa Nichols, uh, and a number of uh, John, John, John Maxwell John, John as well. Maxwell. Yeah, Colin I mean, James. You know, I, I had a guy called Colin James over in uh, in the Gold Coast. He was so so good that I've actually flown him over to Vegas to be there. So we've added another headline. And this guy is like a hidden secret. You talk about a leadership uh, guy. This guy is off the charts, and he was one of the most dynamic speaker trainers I've ever seen. And I actually said to him afterwards, I said, listen, I want to study with you because you are so good. Um, and so I brought him over. So he's there. We've got a relationship specialist uh, who really teaches people how to have extraordinary relationships. She'll be training there. So it's a full lineup. It's going to be a, it's going to be an amazing event. I can't wait to see it. This is where we're going to drink our beer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Definitely. No, I've got quite a few friends that are going in. Look, I don't usually plug events. Um, you know, I, I feel like there are a lot of events that are out there, but this one for sure is one that I've been waiting for all year, you know, so if you can make sure you head out there, you can head over to amplifiedliving.com, which is Dave's website. It's an amazing website. And you can also uh, check out the banner that's on the side there. That's the uh, Las Vegas event, which is coming out this week. So please don't miss out on being there. I'm going to be there. My fiance is going to be there. Dave is going to be there holding it down. So make sure you head out there. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, there's the, um, uh, I'm just going to check one thing for you as well. There's the, uh, there's a special on right now as well. That is really, uh, is really great for people. I, I don't even say it, but they can go to amplifiedleaders.com. So the website is amplifiedliving.com and you'll see the banner, but if, uh, you try amplifiedleaders.com as well, there is a special, if you have a full price ticket, you can uh, bring friends and family for just $250 each, but you have to have a, already have a ticket to do that. So it's really great if you want to bring some friends with your own family or loved ones. So again, I know we don't, we're not here to plug that, but I just thought I'd let them know there is a special for them. No, that's awesome. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for offering that special, mate. Appreciate it. No worries. No worries, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, what, what what excites you most about training and speaking and, and leadership? Like, why do you do this? Well, you know, I don't just do leadership, but I do like leadership. And I think leadership is this kind of like, you know, the, the, the thing that with leadership is that there's people get caught up in what it means, you know, and really it's about influence, you know, the power to influence people. And so everyone can influence people. You can influence people with a smile, with a hug, with your presence, with kindness. My neighbor just told me, he's 80, he just 80 the other day, and he told me, I said, he says, David, he says, I want to vote you for Neighbor of the Year Award. He says, because he just can't believe that we're so kind to the neighborhood. You know, we go around, we, right yesterday we sent everyone, in six neighbors around us, we sent them all gift baskets and, and a bouquet of flowers that we, we my, my, my housekeeper is a florist, and she made this gorgeous bouquet of flowers for everyone because we're doing a renovation. And I know the noise has been, you know, real. So we just send a thank you card for their patience, their understanding. But, you know, we throw parties and, you know, and I think that kind of stuff. So everyone can do that. So leadership, you know, we always mix it up. But, you know, you kind of have to be the head of a company or the head of a team. But if you're the head of a family, if you're the head of a bank account, if you're the head of, you know, the head of a street, you know, you live in a street and you've got neighbors, we can lead. And leadership is really about influence. And influence, you know, when you boil down influence, it's really about kindness. You know, so if we could say, if we can be kind, we can lead. And, you know, you look at the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is a great example. When the Dalai Lama goes into a city, the crime rate goes down. Now, listen, and he goes to cities all over the world, but not everyone knows he's coming. It's not like people know. It's just energetically, 
here there's such an energy about him. He's such a rare human being that, he, that, that they can show that the crime rate in the city drops when he's in town. That's a remarkable thing, but it just shows what kind of influence can happen when somebody is is able to love. And, and I know it sounds a little woo-woo. I'm not a woo-woo guy. I'm a kick-in-the-ass guy, but I do understand woo-woo. And this is really true, is that when we're supremely kind, you know, we have a leadership quality that's very, very rare. Now, do we need to have some of the other attributes of time management and this and goals? Yeah, that's all good. But if I had to choose between kindness and all the other stuff, I choose kindness every single day. And you're going to turn around one point. There's going to be a whole lot of people following you for some reason. Why? Because you're supremely kind. You may know all the other stuff and get those skills, but they're not as important as being a beautiful human being that can influence influence how people feel when you're around them. They just feel better. They feel They feel bigger. They feel more able because why because you just had a conversation with them right that's right yeah spread the love and uh, spread the light that's for sure dave you had the unique opportunity of actually meeting the dalai lama right how was that experience <laughs> well you know we were in a small field in Haley, idaho and this is this changed my life and uh, dalai lama i've been training with uh, peak potential and it was a uh, you know it was a very much more aggressive you know high sales uh, really, really great programs, but just really high sales mentality. So I'd sort of been training and learning, and everything was scripted, everything. Every program scripted, and it's just like, you know, and Harv's a friend of mine, but I mean, he's a phenomenal uh, course writer, right? Um, and I trained for him, you know, in three years, and so I sort of come from this world where, you know, it was really about following the script, and the script was designed in such a way to have an impact in the room. And then I go to, the, to, to this, this, this little field, little soccer field, and, and the Dalai Lama sitting in his big orange chair. He's got his orange and red robes on. He's got his two aides, one either side. He's got his little tiny umbrella with tassels on. And it's the hottest day on earth. It's like you feel like you're in a desert. And we're all sweating there, you know, and the Dalai Lama is speaking, and he's just like such a congenial guy. And at the end, he does his Q&A, and I'm sitting about eight feet from him. Right, I'm like really, really close as he's doing that. We're all sitting on the grass. There's no chairs. Everyone's sitting on their ass on the grass. Right? And someone asked a question. And you kind of got the feeling that the question was more about how clever the guy was than really sort of serving. You know, The question wasn't designed to serve everyone. It was more about, look how clever I am. That's how it felt. And the Dalai Lama looked up in the air with his big glasses on. He pushes his glasses back on his nose. He looks down on the ground, he looks to the right, he looks to the left, and everyone's standing really quiet because it's now like, you know, a minute and a half. He's a long pause, and if he's thinking, and everyone's thinking, wow, this is going to be profound, right? And everyone starts to lean in, you can hear a pin drop, and suddenly the Dalai Lama starts to laugh like a little boy, and he starts to smash his leg, and he's <laughs> giggling, and he's like, I have no idea, he says. <laughs> <laughs> And it was that moment, that moment, I decided to take a complete U-turn on what I was learning. And I started to look at authenticity as being the most powerful force on the universe and just being myself because I was learning how not to be me. The way I was being trained was really about being something but not being completely me. So when I train now, I just remember that moment and I realized that the Dalai Lama gave me such a gift because here he is, one of the true powerhouses in the world um, who really has been able to have such a huge influence on humankind and he is so 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 raw and so authentic and so beautiful and here i was trying to learn how to be something instead of and i was moving away from who i was to learn how to be this thing 
and I know that you know you're you, this is a part of your path is this idea of, of bringing the what you know your wisdoms and trainings and and you, and you have such a gift for that and it's always important to remember that moment is to say you know this is completely me yeah I need some skills I need some skills here and there but don't let those skills move you away from who you are from that central piece of who you are because that's where the influence really lies. You know, I speak to a lot of uh, people that are striving for success. They're really into self-development. And what I'm finding is that a lot of them are really, uh, they're being programmed over the years, all the wrong things, right? It's like almost like when we're younger, we stand a better chance. We're, we're, we're perfect when we first come out, but it's these kind of like <laughs> programmings as we go through the ages. And we spend the second half of our life trying to rewire and reprogram our mind so that we are more of an authentic self. Do you find that for yourself? Like, have you found that you've been yeah, having yeah. to rewrite I mean, things and yeah, undo? Yeah, of yeah. course. You know, I, I mean, I was a liar until I was 44. I didn't know how to tell the truth until I was 44. It was only 10 years ago. And I still sometimes want to lie. I can hear it in the back of my head. And, and surveys show right now, there's studies that have been done that show that uh, 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 in a normal 10-minute conversation, the average person will tell three lies. Right. That's this whole idea is because we're in this kind of competing, proving world. And I was an extreme prover because I was so angry. Right? I didn't want to show who I was. I was afraid of who I was. I didn't know who I was. Right. So, I mean, I, I had to lie to survive when I was a kid and I just became a really good liar. I was a great thief. I, I, was, a, I was an amazing shoplifter for a lot of years. Right. I mean, and, yeah, I mean, I was, I lied, I was from necessity in the beginning and then I just enjoyed it afterwards. <laughs> so, I mean, I was a liar and a thief for a lot of my life. You know, I didn't know how not to be, you know, and I, so when I started doing this work, you know, and I started to realize that I was enough and, you know, and I still had my crap and I still had my days and my moments. Right. Um, but the more I fall in love with my own imperfection and that's the, that's the secret is falling in love with the imperfect parts. And the more transparent, and I love transparency. I think master trainers, and I love training trainers. It's one of my favorite things to do. I just did a 12-month coaching program uh, with 42 trainers. And it was just so much fun. And really what it is is about this transparency piece. You know, nothing's hidden. And it's not like you have to lay everything out on the table. I don't have to always lay on the table the hardships and, oh, my gosh, you know, I lived in poverty and, you know, I went through abuse and physical abuse and all these different things. I don't, but when it's needed, I can talk about it. You know, when it, when it serves the audience, I can bring out these things to serve the audience. But transparency means there's nothing hidden. So if I was completely see-through, there's no hidden dark corners, there's no... You know, anything's up. If someone asks me about something like that, you say, have you ever stolen? Oh, my God, did I ever steal? Let me tell you something, right? So I'm not afraid to tell the truth. And a lot of parents do this with their kids. I was talking to my son yesterday, and I probably shouldn't say this on the air, but I'm going to. And my son and I have really had this beautiful journey of honesty. And, you know, he lied to me. I did this whole show where he came on and we were talking about honesty. And I asked him the other day, I said, uh, and he's only 15, right? I said, Ben, I said, tell me something. I said, if you, and I, I hope he's not going uh, to beat me up for this one, but I'm going to take a risk here. So I, I'll have to apologize to him on this one. I said, have you ever tried smoking a joint? Have you smoked weed? He said, he said, and he looked at me and I could tell that moment where he could have gone either left or right. Left or right, he could have told me the truth or he could have told me a lie. I could see it in his eyes. Because again, when you're a really good liar, you can see people lying quite easily. He said, yeah, I did try it. I said, so how was it? And we had this long conversation about it. He said, but Dad, I, I realized I don't want to do it. I just wanted to know what it was like. I said, no, I get it. I said, I understand. And, uh, and, and, but the idea that, you know, for a 15-year-old to be able to look me in the eye, and this only happened last night, by the way, uh, look me in the eye and just be able to tell me the truth 
right? I mean, where does that happen? Because I know that most of us, uh, I was so terrified of telling my parents the truth of anything. Because if I turned around and said, actually, I just tried smoking a joint, I would have been beating the crap out of <laughs> You know, I'd have lost privileges for the rest of my life. You know, it would have been like, it would have just been a mess. So, you know, I mean, we, we kind of teach each other to lie, you know, because of the responses we get in the world. So, I mean, I'm so proud of him. And that's why I said when he got out of the car last night, I said, Ben, thanks. Thanks for telling me the truth. He said, all right, Dad. You know, but can you imagine that moment, Joe? Uh, yeah, it would be uh, liberating, I think. I think that we associate a lot of pain with telling the truth. Because, you know, ever since we were younger, if we did own up to it, usually it'd be like, oh, you know, that's it, you're in trouble. But I think if you do, like, especially raising children, I mean, I, you know, I don't have kids yet. That won't happen for a few years. But uh, But I'm sure that, you know, when you're raising kids, if you are able to associate it with pleasure, that when they do tell the truth, that you are... Uh, congratulate them or you know give them a pat on the back and say you know thank you for telling the truth uh, i think that that really would encourage them is, i mean is that the case with raising your kids is that what well you're yeah but you know i i it would be great for if you want to listen listen uh, one of the great shows that if you listen to my it's, it's part of the um um uh, the i think it's part of the kick-ass life series i'm playing that with mark and you have to look it up but it's ben wood my son and it's uh, it was all about uh, he, he did this thing on the four agreements, and it's it, it, we we have this and it, he, you know it's really funny he just been to a TEDx talk thing, he came home and I didn't I, I was just about to record a show I said Ben do you want to record with me and he's not like he records with me all the time or anything like that we sat down we had this really honest conversation because he lied to me, and it was like really emotional because I, I I don't I don't know why I, I never thought Ben would lie to me I, I I you know I have two boys and and Cal and I you know. Cal's more like me. I, I used to lie a lot. And Cal, you know, Cal struggles sometimes. And like most kids do. But Ben, I was really surprised when he liked me. He liked me about something really silly. And so, you know, this moment, you know, where we're talking about something really important now, which is about, you know, smoking you know, weed, uh, you know, that he can look me in the eye at 15 and tell me the absolute truth. And, and really, and he reassured me. He said, Dad, you know, I just want you not to worry. He says, you know, I realize it's just something I don't want to do. But I didn't want to go through my life not knowing. I said, well, you realize what? And we talked about drugs. We talked about how drugs are different. We talked about, you know, how many, so many are, are really addictive right away. You know, so I was able to still share some of the concerns I have about what's out there. Um, but that show is really powerful to hear a kid really confess to lying and then sort of talk about what he learned. And then here we are just a little while later, and he's being really tested now. He's being tested because on the show, if he, if he hadn't been tr tr truthful and authentic on that show, and, and actually if he just said something to, to try and please me, and then when I asked him that question last night, he had to lie to me. Because, you know, but the fact that we went through that just recently, and here we are at a juncture of a really important truth, and that and our relationship, I, I can feel closer. We're already close, but I feel closer because he now knows he can trust telling me the truth because I didn't go off the rails at him, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's great. You put him in that position now where he will be more open with you too. Yeah. So I know that you have a, a large network of incredible people. And who would you say in your network is the wisest person that you know when it comes to <laughs> self-development? <laughs> I know it might be a bit of a tough one. Maybe someone that resonates with you most that you've had great chats with. And what advice have they shared with you that uh, has been absolutely uh, invaluable? Mm, wow. 
I, I don't know if I can answer the first part, the wisest, because I think we're all wise in moments, right? I mean, like, you know, sometimes I can have a lot of crap come out of my mouth, and then, you know, sometimes I say something that's profound for that person. <laughs> Half the world could be listening, and they say, that's all the crap. And then there's one person listening, and go, oh, my God, that changed my life. So I think wisdom is this kind of funny thing. You know, saying that even wise people, if they're, if they're talking wisdom at the wrong time, right, mm-hmm. it's still a lot of crap, right? So, you know, some people like to hear their wisdom come out of their mouth all the time, but... So I, I think for that one, I'll push that aside about who's the wisest. Um, I think um, if I think back over this last, well, you know, Mike Dooley and I just spent this beautiful week together. He's actually come up to my house as soon as I get back from Vegas. Uh, Mike Dooley, uh, you've had him on your show. He's, he, he's just a really, really close friend of mine. And, you know, he, he was just at our Amplified Leadership event, the sister event from the one in Vegas, the one we did in, in the Gold Coast. Um, and you know, we were sitting on his back at, after he'd been on stage, and he said something to me, which I found really interesting, and, and then, <clears throat> and it really has launched our friendship into a, even a, a whole new stratosphere, because he came as a trainer, as a speaker, you know, I put him on stage for a day, the audience fell in love with him, and he'd never seen anything like it. And here he is, he's this global leader who talks to 700,000 people a day. He comes to this event, and he is absolutely in shock in the most beautiful way. His heart is blown wide open. And, and he, he looks at me, and he says, Dave, he says, I realize why I was invited here. And I said, why that? He said, I was invited here so I could learn how much I'm loved. And he said, I, and it was always, I know it sounds weird, but... It was so profound to me to see this guy who you think, because of his impact, because of his influence, had really understood how much he was loved by the world. But it took this audience and the way he was so open to them and the relationship. We threw this massive party, and he came in. We had a live band. We had a DJ standing there. He didn't move for about three and a half hours. People lined up, and they just hugged him and said, thank you. You know, And it was almost like he hadn't allowed that in his whole life. And I think that that wisdom... To, to instead of being there as the sage, he was there as a student. And he was there as a student of true humanity loving on him. And he had to let go of everything and allow it in. And it was such a beautiful thing to witness. And it was such a rare thing to witness because, you know, so often trainers, you know, you go there, you do your thing, and you kind of tolerate people a little bit because you've got to get out, you know, and everyone wants to argue and take a photograph, so it's a bit of a pain in the ass. And he just stood there. And he didn't, he did it for them and he did it for himself, but it almost like, he almost became bigger because of this, this ability to be loved by an audience. And it was just, a, again, it was one of the latest things I've seen, but I could probably tell you thousands because I notice these things all the time. But that, I know it's not kind of the most profound thing, but it was profound for me. Yeah, it's like he grew from all the love. <laughs> and you know what? Actually, Dave, I interviewed Mike uh, about a week and a half back, and I've got to say, you guys are like brothers. You seriously are like brothers from another mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's such a good guy. And you know how we met? It was really funny. We met we're in, we, uh, Jack Hanford had put on this, uh, we're, we're part of the same group, it's called the Transformational Leadership Council. I don't know anyone. I mean, I, I'm not a big reader of everyone's books, and, you know, and I certainly don't have starstruck syndrome, right? And I'm sitting there with this guy, and we, we like each other, and I know his name's Mike, and we end up going out for a beer, and we're walking down Bourbon Street in New Orleans, and we just we just hung out, and, you know, I get home, and I said to Jen, I met this really great guy. I, I still look to be great friends. She said, what's his name? I said, Mike. 
she said, Mike who? And I said, I'm oh, actually, I'm not sure. And I looked at who it was because I had the, 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 um, the list of people at the event. I said, oh, it's Mike Dooley. She said, what? And, said, and she'd been getting the notes from the universe for four and a half years. And she read them every morning. I had no freaking idea who Mike Dooley was. I just fell in love with this guy. It's just a guy. And I didn't know what he did. I had no idea. He didn't talk about it. We just, I just liked him. And I liked him from the moment I met him. And he probably is one of the kindest people I've ever met. He truly, truly, truly lives his work. You know, and, and he truly believes that everyone is the eye of God. He has the eyes and ears of God, he calls it. And he's not religious at all. But he talks about, you know, everyone is this kind of perfect thing that is traveling through time and space and, and, and really is a masterpiece. You know, and he treats people like masterpieces. And it's such a rare thing. And he's, he really is beautiful to be with. So. Yeah, no, he's definitely one of a kind. He's a great guy. So Dave, having my ear to the streets in the self-development space, I have found lately that uh, the topic of habits and daily rituals seem to be like a pretty hot topic. So what are your rituals for living an amplified lifestyle? <laughs> well, you know, I have some bad ones. <laughs> my bad ones. I like to break bread with my friends. Uh, I build, I mean, we just did these two extensions. So I've just done two major renovations. And when we're building, my builder always laughs to me. She says, how come every time you talk to me about building, you're talking about, well, look, when we have our friends over, this is how it's going to feel. And, oh, yeah, when we throw big parties, this this should be there because of that. So, you know, constantly, and we're building right now this cabana around the pool. And I, I just posted it on my Instagram yesterday, a picture of it, you know, they're just putting a roof on. And by the way, it's amplified living. Anyway, so, um, but the idea, I put this picture on there, the cabana, and I said, you know, I, I'm so excited to break bread with my friends and, and, and neighbors, and, and you know, that, that, that's why I build things. And so some of my habits are really about connecting and spending time. Uh, yesterday's a good example of a habit. You know, we were tired. You know, I've been on the road, like, constantly. I've done seven events. I mean, and I haven't had a moment. I'm traveling tomorrow. Uh, Jen was exhausted last night. I said, Jen, let's just get up. It's 8.30 at night. The sun's already gone down. And we went out in the boat. And we, we drove the boat up to our, uh, in front of where we live. And just got out uh, with some gin. And we, we made a gin and tonic. And we just sat there and we talked. And it was a gorgeous night. And we spent, we, we came in about, it was about 1 a.m. this morning. Um, and habits like that, of seizing the moment when you most don't want to. You know, it's like I'm exhausted. It's like when I come off stage. I'll often go out and, and, and hang out until the early hours. I've been on stage for 10 hours. The habit of, of not going back and just laying on the bed, the habit of getting changed and going out and hanging out with people and friends. And so that's a really big one. Um, I, I, I have some, um, I mean, sort of habits of, of, of probably my success habits um, would be that I, when I hit the shower every single day, I'm fully energized. And I've done this since a young man. I, it doesn't matter if, I, if I'm feeling like crap, if I drank too much, or if I'm really tired. The moment the water hits me, it's like this, this trigger. And I feel all the power that, my, that I've ever had in my life come surging into my body. And I feel completely alive. And again, even if it's you know, an hour sleep, I can completely energize myself. So the habit of using the shower as a trigger... And, and stepping out of the shower as if this is the last day and the first day of my life, it, it happens every day. And people are always amazed at the stamina I have, but it's because I use that shower as that trigger. And I just know <clears throat> when I walk out, I'm going to be completely alive, completely empowered, completely, you know, completely in the moment. And I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to take everything as it comes. 
And another habit is the habit of, of, of acceptance, accepting what is and not trying to change everything. So, <clears throat> you know, when things happen, I just don't worry about virtually anything. Apart from with my kids and Jen, I still become a bit of a bear uh, and I can be a real, you know, I can be a tool sometimes, right? But with everything else, I just like, I let life do what it's doing and I don't try and force life in the boxes. I just sort of see, you know, when, she, when stuff happens, I don't resist it. I just go with what's happening. And I think that habit serves to really allow me to live an amplified life and, and you know, and, and really enjoy and, and squeeze the juice out of every second. Yeah, awesome, Dave. Thanks for inviting us into your world. You know, it's uh, funny that point that you make about the shower. Um, I practice a habit of having a cold shower every morning. Right, and there's many reasons for it. There's a lot of benefits. Actually, it increases your uh, metabolism and increases your uh, testosterone levels in men. Right, um, better focus, better blood circulation. So I practice this habit, and it's funny because you know they say everyone's got different opinions. It's like 30 days or 66 days for, to solidify a habit, or 120, anyway in between. And uh, I practiced this for a month, and it was getting into winter, so it was getting harder and harder to do. But it was funny because after the 30 days of putting it into practice of jumping and having a freezing cold shower, after the 30 days when I was when I jumped back in the shower, I was tempted to keep it on cold. Even though I didn't need to do it anymore because I had made it such a habit. And uh, yeah, you should try it. You should try it. Yeah, it really increases your focus and it keeps you really alert. <laughs> well, you know, I've I, I, I lived in countries where I had a cold shower every day for a year and I, I know exactly what you're doing. And in the end, it feels warm. I mean, you actually just get to a point where it doesn't feel cold anymore, right? And, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, but I, you know, I, I just want everyone to, you know, enjoy your bad habits as well. I mean, I just think that, you know, sometimes we can get the, you know, we, we build these monsters of personal development where we can, you know, we just can, you know, just have some bad things or bad habits, you know. I mean, I just think some, if you want to have a slob day, have a whole slob day, you know, just take a day off and, you know, don't wash and just lay there like a big potato, but just don't do it for long. But just don't think you have to always be on because some people are like that. I find with people who are getting new into personal growth, you know, they kind of, they, they, everything, you know, there is a personal development sort of exercise. And, but I do love the shower thing. I think it's really, it's, here's another one they can accurate. Don't read newspapers. Try it for 45 days. Don't read a newspaper for 45 days. Don't watch the news for 45 days. Try those two things in combination with your cold shower. Your life will change because there's so much negativity coming in people's heads every single day from the news and newspapers. I just think it just doesn't serve anyone by, by reading or watching that stuff, especially American news. I'm not sure what it is with American news, but oh my goodness me, eyewitness news. I mean, everyone's guilty before they're innocent. It's just awful. It's just awful uh, way of, uh, of showing the news. So maybe those three could be their challenge after this call. Cold showers, no news and no newspapers. <laughs> oh, I love it, Dave. I love it. And I think... Uh... To one up that, if you could, no Facebook. <laughs> That'd be a huge one for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm guilty of that. And so I just got a, a, a bit of a stinky email from a guy that says, you know, I'm, I'm really upset with you that you don't post on Facebook because I take months off at a time. And I just, I don't, I mean, I like taking time off from it, but, you know, it, it has become a disease. And especially now with those little pings in the phone, like, ding, ding. But, you know, there's a science. This is interesting. This is a science. It's showing right now that those pings on the phone and the likes you get on your Instagram, all these different things, they actually give a rush of endorphins in the body. And it's actually, it's almost like an addiction. It's like a drug. It's like chocolate or whatever, right? And so, you know, we've got to understand that, that when we're constantly looking, what it is is we're searching for that rush. 
and it's uh, it's actually quite unhealthy, and it really is. I think it really is quite a good idea to have a month off and just you know turn all the alerts off and not look for all those likes and you know whatever because it, it's something we're hungry for, and that's why I say it's such a weird world where someone has you know five thousand friends on Facebook and they feel alone, right? Yeah, that's right. It's that dopamine hit, isn't it? That's what they're chasing all yeah. the time. And the only yeah. way to get away from it is by uh, practicing with willpower to to wean yourself off it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or just or just lose your phone like I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that's even great. That's a great idea. Yeah, in the morning, uh, Charlene and I have been practicing not looking at our phones first thing in the morning. We got to a point where it's so bad where we wake up and check our phones before we even say hi to each other. Yeah, morning. That, yeah. I mean, that's terrible, right? That can start creating a separation in your relationships and oh, and it, de- like it desensitizes you. Yeah, it's like having a television in the bedroom. I mean, I don't know who ever invented putting television in the bedroom when you meant to be intimate. Yeah, let's go to bed and watch TV, right? But here's the thing, you know, if you don't, it's, it's good to go and buy an alarm clock because what's happened is the phones become the camera and the alarm clock. So why they're in the bedroom? So the better way is to leave your phone actually in another room. So there's no temptation, and then get an alarm clock that you set for, or, or even set your alarm, set your phone in the bathroom, so it's not near your bed. So you know you have to get up and go get it. But I would just say that's the, that's the discipline is actually not having a phone in the bedroom at all. Yeah, yeah, that's a great plan. Definitely something that should be practiced. We could do. We, you and I could talk all day. I could just tell. I don't know how long you do your shows for, but I can tell that this. We could just keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> we we are about to wrap it up for the listeners that are, are, are tuned in. Um, I do believe that too, Dave. I feel like we could talk forever, to be honest. Um, you know, we have a lot of listeners uh, on the line that read a lot of books. They're really interested in in, in reading and and self development and growing. So, are there any recommendations that you have in the way of books or? Uh, courses or DVDs or anything like that? You know, I, I, I started using Audible and I, I, the reason I do it like this morning, I go in a hot tub in the morning <clears throat> and sit out, you know, outside and then listen to a book. So I found that listening has become a new thing for me. Um, and I, um, there's an interesting book. This is probably not the one everyone's thinking about. I was listening to Tony Robbins the other day and he mentioned this book called Slow Sex. And I thought, that's an interesting title. I'll have a listen to that. And it's really about this sort of deeper level of living um, re- living with this extreme intimacy and, and, and sort of almost an orgasmic feeling all the time as opposed to, you know. So it's, 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 it's not tantric. It, it's more philosophical than that. But I, I thought it was a, it's fun because it's not everyone's looking at, you know, leadership and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I think when we can lead ourselves in that arena, you know, and have that kind of, um, have that kind of connection with a partner, right? I think that's something that's really quite beautiful, right? It is. And it's empowering as well when you can be in that place, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there, there's a, uh, um, Mike Dooley just came out with a, a, a new book, which I, I think is interesting. I don't know if you probably mentioned it because it was on there, but the 10 things that people want to tell you, yeah. um, I think that for some people who are, it's one of those things when you read through it and you really sort of grasp, and it may only be one chapter that's significant for you, but there's this idea sometimes, you know, we forget. We forget that life is really, really, really short, you know, and it's terminal. And some of, some of us just got to get going, you know, because it's just, 
you know, just and it's not just get going with success. I'm talking get going with the adventures of our life and get going with uh, the things we said we were going to do, and we keep putting off and get going with loving. I mean, it's it's kind of that kind of thing, you know. It's like, I, I I do think I'm 54 right now, and so statistically, I've gone past my halfway point if I live a long life, even. You know, and I started. I think about that sometimes, and I think, well, you know, well, and I, I I've done a lot of great things, but I I feel like I want. There's certain things I want to get done, and it's just becoming more conscious of getting them done and just saying, look, you know, this is going to be my priority this year. I'm going to get, make sure I've always talked about doing this. I'm just going to do it. And so I, I like that book for that reason, that it, it sort of wakes you up to the, to the sort of end date and starts saying, let's just get right into the now and really do the things that we love to do. Yeah. You know, I remember you saying uh, in one of your podcasts that when you were younger, you didn't think you were going to live that long like you thought you're going to live to like 30 or something like that so you just lived your life and then when you got there you're like oh wait a minute i'm still alive <laughs> i so it's funny i you know, i had forgotten that i said that but it, yeah it's true i believe that i would not live past 40 and i thought that my whole life so i thought you know i'm just going to squeeze it all in and that's why a part of the part of the reason i backpacked for 10 and a half years 42 countries you know and and why i i always say yes my two favorite words is yes and both you know, so it's like, yes. And people say, we do this? Yes. I, I don't think about it. And you see, even if it's something I don't really want to do, it's yes. And what I find is when I say yes to things, is I end up doing something, even something that normally my mind could talk me out. Say, ah, do I really want to do that? Me, I'm not really, or whatever, right? But I say yes to stuff, and I find myself doing that, and I'm this is amazing. I would never have done this. And I do that in restaurants. You know that. I never order from the menu. I always ask the waitress to bring, or waiter to yes. bring me their favorite thing. Um, and, and both, you know, yes and both. People say, oh, I've got to do this or this. So I'm saying, well, find a way to do both. And that way I think life does feel like the days feel longer. It's like last night saying yes to the boat, even though we were tired, it was a bit of a pain in the ass. It was the first time out on the boat this year, so I knew it would be like, you know, you're getting familiar with things again, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, wow. I sat out there and I said, again, wow, this is so good for my soul right now. I said, this is so beautiful. The, the warm breeze and the taste of the gin. It was awesome. Music <laughs> <It> was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dave, that's a great way to look at life, mate. I, I love it. Absolutely. Love it. I think more people should live that way. You know, you really squeeze the juice out of life and live it to the fullest. Beautiful, Dave. Well, that's what the, you know, the Amplified Living kind of motto is, you know, it's just, it's to crank it up. That's why the show's called Crank It Up uh, with David T.S. Wood, right? Uh, because it's really cranking up your life and squeezing the juice out of every second. And, and the reason why people ask me, why did we move from the kick-ass life to crank it up? It's just moving branding because the kick-ass life, uh, was a, someone else had that brand. And so we just moved everything under the Amplified brand. So Crank It Up is actually part of the Amplified logo. So, you know, Amplified Living, you know, Crank It Up. And I, I so I, I really think that there is a... there. There's nothing wrong philosophically with just saying yes and, and, and squeezing the juice out of it. And because I think people, a lot of people listening right now, especially if you have a job, if you think back over your last two, three, four years, look look for the highlight moment. And quite often it's it's hard it's hard to find them because every moment feels the same. Which means that you know when you look back one year over the next, it feels like they they went really fast. But I think when you when you pepper your life with these highlight moments. When you pepper your life with things that, you know, are really lifetime memories. And they don't have to be expensive. Some people say, oh, yeah, well, they have to cost money. No, they don't. A lot of things don't cost anything, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, I mean, let, let's say I'll, I'll challenge you, uh, um, uh, Joel. Yeah. You know, when you come up to Canada, instead of, instead of um, showering, 
uh, this is something I used to do and do it in winter as well, is dive in a nice cold lake <clears throat> in the morning. So, but you never forget it. It's almost like the first time you do it, I can still remember exactly what I, and I do it naked, by the way. This is, this is Kootenai Lake. Oh, every morning God. I go for, every morning I go for a run, I come down to this remote beach and I dive in and there was snow on the ground sometimes. And it was like the coldest thing you've ever seen. But I, I mean, it's almost like every, every cell in my body pops, but you don't forget that kind of thing. That didn't cost me a nickel. But it was a highlight moment. I still can remember the smells and the taste of that moment because they were so visceral, right? Yeah, mate. I don't think you remember where I'm from. I'm from Australia. We don't have we don't have ice cold lakes like that. Well, I said come to <laughs> My Canada, head didn't pop I? Off. I said, you're, 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 we'll bring you up to Canada, and I'll throw you in the lake. Oh no! That, oh wow! Oh, I think I have to do that. I really have to. That's really stepping outside the comfort zone for for me, who's used <laughs> to like you know the hot beaches. So. Yeah, I'm well, going to have to take you I, I, up on I'll, I'll, I'll let you keep your budgie smuggler on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Now, Dave, I think uh, uh, the conversation we've just had really ties into the, the last question I have for you. And the last question is, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Big breath in. What a rush. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, if I, I, it's so it's yeah. That's such a great question. Thirty seconds. Um, I tell people, you know, I just say, look, the things I learned because I wouldn't tell them what to do because people don't like being told. What I learned that I wish I had learned sooner was to forgive immediately. Was to love with every fiber of my body was to say yes to everything, was to, when I felt afraid, was to, you know, was to step in with both, or jump in with both feet, was to, you know, to, to not just make friends, but to, to, to create friendships where, you know, where, where my home is an extension of that. I would say the heart and the home are, are the same thing. If your, if your home is really closed and you don't have any people in it, your heart is pretty much the same thing. So is to really open, you know, is to wish I'd open my home up sooner to more, you know, more potlucks and more parties and more live bands where our friends dance together and laugh together and stayed up all night together, you know, and I wish I'd stayed up more times all night. And I do it a lot, all-nighters. I pull all-nighters all the time. And there's nothing better than pulling an all-nighter and staying up the whole next day or having a couple of hours sleep. And just that whole idea that instead of living 12 hours that day, you live 24 hours, you had a couple of hours sleep and you did it all again. You know, and I wish that I'd, um, I wish that I'd have, um, um, really, uh, shared, shared myself sooner, you know, shared my truth sooner. And, and, and told the truth sooner. You know, if, if I could do anything, it's just to, to, to truly share who I am and be unafraid of that. And, you know, and I, and I, and I wish that I had, have, um, you know, taken more time away uh, without any link to anybody else on adventures like I did in Kilimanjaro. You know, more things like that where, you know, you go on these adventures that are, you know, three, four, five weeks and, and away and it's into a culture that was extraordinary. And so this is more like three minutes now, so I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You've lived that life, mate. So you're doing really well. You're a great example of, 
you know, living life to the fullest. So Dave, thank you so much for sharing your lessons, your advice, your stories with us today. I know there's been so much value on this call. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I want to say one thank you to you. Thank you for your help. You've guided our company and you've been a real force and a real, you know, a real, you've consulted with us. You've helped us do a better job reaching more people. And I will be eternally grateful and I love you very much. Oh, thank you so much, mate. Love you too. Yeah.